Over recent months, there's been some pretty horrific reports coming out of Nigeria. Uh, reports of assault rifle and machete-wielding mobs attacking churches. Now, there's a very long history to this conflict. It's a bit like the, the long history between Ireland and, and England. Religion is just one part of the really sorry story of the conflict in Nigeria. There's economics and ethnicity in the mix too. But at the same time, uh, some, many of those who have lost their lives are our brothers and sisters in Christ and they've died because of the name of Christ. Uh, with the recent collapse of the Sri Lankan government, uh, we've been hearing about the causes of the economic crisis, uh, which isn't merely to do with COVID, but many commentators trace the origins of the current problems back to a decades-long civil war and also the 2019 bombings of church buildings in Colombo at Easter in that year. Now, these bombings didn't only have the intended effect of killing Christians, they also scared away the tourists. Uh, when we hear of these events, when we hear of Christians being persecuted, suffering, being attacked for being Christian, uh, when we hear these things, we cry out, don't we? Uh, we cry out, why? Uh, we cry out, how long, O oh Lord? Uh, we cry out, where are you, God? Uh, Christians have been attacked, they've been persecuted for our faith in Jesus since the beginning. In our time in the book of Acts, we've seen Christians arrested. We've seen them dragged out of their homes and put in chains. We've even seen one believer murdered, stoned to death by an angry mob. And his crime? Saying Jesus is alive. Proclaiming Jesus is the risen and reigning king. Uh, last week, we looked at Acts 11. We were reminded of this event. We heard how believers had scattered to escape persecution, spreading from Jerusalem to way up north to the area around Antioch. And as we turn to chapter 12, the camera pans back down to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, and we are more than a decade after Stephen's murder, we sometimes lose track of the time frame in Acts. It's only been a few chapters, a few weeks for us. It's been decades in real history in Jerusalem, persecution hasn't stopped, it's intensified. Instead of angry mobs killing Christians, has become government policy. So let's hear this sorry story, starting from verse 1. So Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, we've got to get our historical bearings again. Um, there are lots of names in those two sentences. Who is Herod? Herod's probably a name you know from the Bible. Well, this bloke is Herod Agrippa I. It's going to be really confusing for a moment. It's worth getting your head around this. The other Herods. All right. Agrippa's grandfather is Herod also. He's the Herod around in the Christmas story. The wise men go to Agrippa's grandfather. Agrippa's uncle, 
Oh, hang on. I've, I've, there we go. Agrippa's uncle is that one there. So that's the that's that's Grandpa. That's Uncle Herod coming now. Uncle Herod is the guy who had John the Baptist killed. He's the same uncle who had uh, was involved in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. This Herod, we're at the Herod number three so far in the Bible. This Herod is uh, not the one we meet in the life of Jesus, but he's a chip off the old block. He seems to have learned the politics of power and fear and control from his granddad and uncle. So that's the Herods. Now, before we go on and find out what Herod makes of the politics of persecution, who is this James, the brother of John? Well, James and John were disciples of Jesus, the sons of Zebedee. One of the key moments in their life with Jesus is when they ask him for key roles in his kingdom. If he's going to be king, they want to be governors or something like that. Uh, This is their question. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. That's their question. Jesus' answer to their request is pertinent to what we hear in Acts 12. Jesus says, you're not going to sit on my left or my right because my glory is not like the glory of Herod. My glory's got nothing to do with military rule or political power. Jesus' glory is shown when he gives his life on the cross. And so ironically, the right and left positions will be taken by two criminals. And Jesus goes on to say, although they won't be with him there in his glory, they're not going to hang on crosses with Jesus. They will suffer for his name's sake. Uh, in this conversation, Jesus uses a metaphor of baptism and drinking a cup to talk about suffering and persecution. Jesus says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Jesus isn't talking about water, but suffering. At the hand of Herod, Jesus, sorry, James drank the cup and was baptized. But the point Jesus goes on to say is suffering as a follower of Jesus, suffering as a Christian isn't meaningless. James's death is not a wasteful death. It's what he calls his people to. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven isn't shown in success, but service. Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all, for even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness is found in suffering and self-giving like Jesus, which Peter is about to discover. Herod sees killing Christians is politically beneficial. Like his, like his uncle, he's not worried about what's right or just. He just wants to do whatever gives him more power. So he arrests Peter and we know what he plans to do. Verse 3. When he saw that this, that's killing James, when he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison 
handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. The mention of Passover is ominous. We know what happened last time a Herod got his hands on someone at Passover. But while Herod is plotting, the church is praying. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. There's lots of ways the Jerusalem church could have responded. They could have fled in fear, hidden in anxiety. They could have tried to fix the situation, taken matters into their own hand, lobbied Herod or protested his injustice. They could have tried going over his head, found a sympathetic Roman official. They could have given up. First James, now Peter, what's the point? Obviously we're wrong about Jesus, he's powerless. But they don't respond in any of these reasonable ways. Instead, they devote themselves to prayer, day after day, night and day, praying. Do you think we'd do the same? Maybe we don't pray like this because we're not under pressure. Though, if we haven't learnt to run to God now... We've got to wonder how we'll respond, how we'll stand firm in tough times. The church's instinctual commitment to prayer is a challenge. What do you reckon they were praying for? For for protection? That there'll be no further executions or arrests? Asking God to strengthen Peter so he won't give in, he won't renounce his faith. We know what happened last time a Herod arrested someone during Passover. Last time Peter didn't stand up so well, did he? Denied Jesus. I'm sure they're praying for God's strength for him. And maybe, just maybe, they're praying for Peter's rescue. Though with the memory of James fresh in their hearts, I'm guessing that prayer was made pretty timidly. But despite what I'm sure is reasonable doubt, at the last minute, God powerfully responds to their prayers. Verse 6. The night before Herod was, a bit, was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two guards, bound with two, da- two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, 
Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Just as it's amazing that the church has been constantly praying for Peter, do you notice what Peter's doing? He's not fretting. He's not even praying. He's sound asleep. The sword is being sharpened for his neck. He's on a cold stone floor, wrists weighed down by iron chains, flanked by what I'm guessing were not pleasant conversation partners. And yet he's not anxiously awake. He's not tossing and turning all night. He's sound asleep. Deeply trusting God. He is so deeply asleep that even the brightest light being flicked on in his room doesn't stir him. The angel's got to kick him in the ribs. This is a funny story. It's right when Margaret was reading it that she had it with joy and laughter in her voice. This is a funny story. It's funny that Peter assumes this has got to be a dream. There's no way God would actually do this. We know that angels appear in visions. It's not completely crazy that he thinks it's a vision. That's what happened with Cornelius in chapter 10. You see that Peter is so groggy. The angel has to tell him, put one foot and then another foot. Like Peter is so out of it. But also what happens is so incredible. He walks straight past two sets of guards and the iron barred prison gate just casually swings open for him. So I reckon other than the fact that his ribs are sore for this whole experience, it doesn't surprise me he thinks it's a vision. But it's not. It's real. God's power to save is real. But not only is Peter surprised by God's action, so is the church. Verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came out, came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. But when she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. Once Peter comes to his senses, he heads straight to Mary's house. I'm guessing this was one of the houses the Jerusalem church gathered From the way things are described, Mary must have been well off. She's got a big enough house for the church to gather. The house has an outer entrance and she employs a servant girl. This is not a woman in poverty. Mary is one of the many wealthy women we meet in the New Testament. One of the many who have a valuable role in the ministry of the church. And just as Peter I couldn't believe what was happening. Neither could Rhoda or the church. I love Rhoda, don't you? She's full of passion. 
she she's so excited. She just leaves Peter at the door knocking. And you may not expect an ancient servant girl to have so much sass. She goes to the church and she keeps insisting, no, I'm telling the truth, I've left Peter. I don't know how she kept on doing it, but I've left Peter at the door, it's really him. She She's not going to take no for an answer. Reminds you of the women who first saw the empty tomb. She's insistent even when the rest of them say, it's got to be his angel. Now that is weird, isn't it? What on earth do they mean? Uh, Angels are something the Bible talks about a bit. This means if you're a Christian, you believe in angels. But although they're mentioned, they're on the fringe. It's not a main message of the Bible. I reckon many of us are a bit weirded out by angels. Some of us, it's because we're influenced by anti-supernaturalism. Anti-supernaturalism. We we just managed to hold on to believing in the resurrection and the virgin birth, but angels are a step too far. I mean, we live in a world of the internet and aeroplanes. No, sir, we're not into angels. Others of us, though, are wary because there's lots of weird things people believe about angels. It's weird spiritualism kind of stuff. Angels often go along with astrology, crystals and tarot cards. We know that those things are not God-honouring, so we throw out angels with the bathwater. But the Bible has no problem talking about angels because they're real. What is an angel? The word angel means messenger. It can mean a human messenger. There's a slight chance the believers in Mary's house think, oh, It's not Peter at the door, it's a messenger from Peter, an angel from Peter. I don't think, though, that's what it means, because in the context of these events in Acts, angels are supernatural messengers. The one that comes in, flicks on the lights, that's supernatural. They're messengers, though, aren't they? Sometimes their message is words, like the angel that met Cornelius in his vision in chapter 10. Though the message we have here in Acts 12, their message is an action, Rescuing Peter from jail is the message that they've come with. But what what on earth is the church saying? Maybe it's Peter's angel. Uh, Some people reckon the ancient Jews believe when a person died, they become an angel. It's pretty slim evidence that they believe that. But possibly they thought Peter had been killed and he had come to them as an angel. Others say ancient Jews believed every person had a guardian angel that even looked like the person. Once again, there's not much evidence that they believe this. And like becoming an angel, it's not something the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach about guardian angels. We don't really know what they meant. But regardless, it's clear they didn't believe God would rescue Peter They didn't really expect God to answer their prayers in this way. They think it's got to be something to do with angels. And so whilst the believers were amazed, they were also sent to tell James and the other believers. Peter wants this news to get out about what God has done. This James here is not the James that got killed at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, This is James, the brother of Jesus. And so the the church here is amazed. They send Peter on his way to go escape from Herod, get out of of the city. 
So whilst they're amazed and they're praising God, the scene, the camera goes back to Herod and his soldiers who are furious the next morning. Verse 18, In the morning there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Herod had planned to execute Peter. Sadly, the guards suffer that fate. But even though Herod has been defeated by God, he doesn't let that get him down too much. What he decides is it's time to go for on a trip. So he goes on a trip to Caesarea. Maybe he is smarting a bit from Peter's escape, hoping a change of scenery will help. And while he's there, there's a visit from some folk who come groveling. They come cap in hand, begging for Herod to provide their people with food. Verse 19. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing, securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. The delegation from Tyre and Sidon come groveling and they give Herod what he wants, praising him as if he's a god. And in his pride, Herod receives their praise. He loves this. This is what ancient kings and emperors thought, that they were gods. Finally, elevated to the situation he was born for. But on this day, Herod learns he's a mere mortal. Verse 23, immediately because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. And he was eaten by worms and died. This isn't Luke's imagination running wild. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, uh, he's a pretty dapper folk, uh, dapper man, Josephus, that's him up there. Josephus records this event. He records this regal visit to Caesarea. He records the crowd praising Herod as a god. And then Josephus says, Now the king rested in in a high chamber, And when he'd been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed his life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. What a reversal. He's happy to be praised as a god, but in the end, he's worm food. Herod comes to a grisly end. But God's kingdom grows. Verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. A part of what we're seeing in this chapter is a battle of the gods. Herod thinks he's a god. Herod thinks he can kill the people of God. Herod thinks he's God, but because of his blasphemy and pride, God kills him. In fact, did you notice... It's not God directly who kills him, 
God doesn't even need to get his hands dirty to take on Herod and to defeat Herod. He just sends one of his angels. He just sends a messenger. Herod has failed. Failed to destroy God's kingdom. Failed to be a God. This shows who is truly God. The one who is truly God. The one who is Lord of Lords is the one Herod's uncle had crucified. And we see this as the word of God grows and spreads and flourishes. God cannot be stopped. And this is where we go. That's where we have to go for an answer to the question of where God is when his people suffer. When God's people suffer, like the execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter, when these things happen, it's tempting to look for some kind of measurable benefit. We rationalise suffering by saying, well, it was necessary for Peter, sorry, for James to die so that the word of God might spread and flourish. The problem with this is it makes God sound like a giant spreadsheet in the sky. That God's got his suffering balance and he ordains a, a certain amount of tragedy as long as it's outweighed by the benefits. That the, the death of saints is okay as long as it's outweighed by the salvation of sinners. But that's not what the Bible says. Acts 12 doesn't answer the why of suffering. But it tells us what we need to know. These events show us God is in control. God is in control. And that is what the church in Jerusalem needed to know. And it's what they saw firsthand. Peter wasn't freed because the church lobbied Herod for freedom of religion. Peter wasn't freed because the church took up swords and stormed to the prison. God powerfully rescued Peter. We see that God is sovereignly, powerfully in control, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. But you've got to ask, what what does that mean for James, the brother of John? What it means is his death wasn't because of God's impotence. We don't know why God powerfully ordained for James's life to be short and for Peter to be freed. We, we don't know, but we know it's not because God wasn't in control. When we put these two events together, they give us confidence that the same God is sovereignly, wisely, lovingly at work in both James's death and Peter's release which logically works but would be hard for us to hear if it were not for Mark 10.45. After Jesus told James and John years before, decades before this happened, that they would drink the same cup and share in the same baptism as him, after Jesus told them they would suffer for his name, he says... For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When we suffer, especially when we suffer, when Christians suffer persecution, 
we are living out the cross-shaped life. A life of self-giving even to the point of death. When we suffer for the name of Christ, it's not because God is not powerful, not able to rescue and prosper his people. It's because this is the life we've signed up to. This is the life you've been called to in Jesus. And we can do this because Jesus has done this for us. Jesus gave his life, which means even if we never know the why of the things that happen in Nigeria, Sri Lanka, all around the world, we may not be able to know why. But we know God is powerfully with his suffering people because Christ has suffered with and for us. Let's pray. Our Father God, please help us trust you. Help us hold fast to you in times of suffering and persecution. Please help us deeply know that in your kingdom, the great ones are those who suffer and serve. Help us take heart that in giving of ourselves, suffering is the way of Christ. We ask you to grow us in prayer. Teach us to pray now. So we will instinctively pray when tensions are high. Help us know your power, that your power is made perfect in weakness. That when we are strong, sorry, that when we are weak, then we are strong. Help us know your power, both when things are easy and when they're tough. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.